When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So there are a ton of topics that I want to get to today and dig deeper into. This is this video, this podcast today is going to be somewhat similar to my one on Friday where I, I kind of jump around from different topics. Uh, with that being said, I do want to start off with precious metals as the title of this video suggests. But before I get to that, just a quick reminder for my viewers over in the YouTube world. Uh, I am on mo- most major podcast platforms and, and over time, my content more and more has neatly fit into that category of, of just that, a podcast. Now, I'm not saying like stop listening to me on YouTube, but I just want to give that as a reminder to you guys because I know that podcast platforms, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcast or, or whatever other ones there are out there, they oftentimes work better for my content. They're easier to listen to and 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 play when you're, I don't know, working out or driving on your commute or whatever. And, and I know a lot of people enjoy that because my, my content does fit more neatly into that category than, than videos here on YouTube because I don't use that you know, whole video feature a whole lot anymore. Uh, so I just want to share with that, that with you guys real quick. But, but getting into to this main topic today, precious metals, and the big drop that we've seen just in the last uh, couple hours as I'm recording this video on, on Wednesday afternoon, we see silver sort of bouncing off or bouncing around $18 an ounce and actually briefly dropped below $18 an ounce. And then gold uh, bouncing off of the $15 mark, a pretty significant drop. And, and it's kind of a bummer. You know, it was only Monday that I was talking about how silver and gold were on the move coming off of the weekend. Uh, you know, gold up around fifteen twenty-five at the time, and actually it was up above fifteen thirty at one point. Uh, silver up above eighteen fifty, and yet we're dropping here again. Now, the reason for this drop is is maybe a couple reasons. First of all, uh, the the whole situation with Iran hasn't really flared up yet, and and so I imagine that some traders are are maybe. That, that that bot during that time period on expectations of an ex, uh, escalation maybe are are getting out of that trade, but I think that's a pretty small component. Um, as a whole, I think a lot of this is is movement in the dollar, movement in in treasuries, uh, movement in the stock market on news of uh, China U.S. trade relations somewhat improving, and 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 to me this is a lot of noise as a whole. Uh, I've, I've said for a long time now that the trend. Is and, and remains to be that that this these trade talks are devolving, that the trade war is escalating, that this trade war is much more than just a cold war. And so, you know, when I hear these these you know, news items about how China is in this case uh, readying to purchase more pork from the United States or or whatever, I, I it's not so much that I'm pessimistic. It's just that I, I try to maintain a, a realistic point of view, and my realistic p- point of view is that. You know this this negotiations with China extend far beyond just uh, uh, the trade piece of things or tariffs or whatever. It extends into a broader geopolitical uh, wrestling match between the U.S. and, and China, uh, which I've covered this so many times in the past. Encompasses what's going on with North Korea, Taiwan, the South China Sea, One Belt One Road Initiative. 
uh, Hong Kong, and so much more. And so, you know, until I see some movement in those pieces of this this wrestling match, uh, I'm not really optimistic about a trade deal being worked out. And so this is news, and I think the escalation, you know, further escalation is ultimately going to to occur. And yet the markets are, you know, acting as if the trade deal is, is almost like like the, the, the uh, I don't know, the, the ceremonial pens have already been picked out and, 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 and Trump and she are, are, are having a summit and they're about to sign this, but but we're far from that. Uh, the, the other piece of this is also that uh, the threat of impeachment against Trump, as if there ever was much of a, a threat. I, I didn't really see much of a chance of impeachment actually occurring, but the the odds of that occurring are, are declining at this point. Um because he released a transcript of his his call with with the Ukraine, uh, I forget exactly who it was from the Ukraine that that he was speaking to. But but as a whole, I mean that's, I mean again that's political noise, and 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 I don't think should be influencing the precious metals markets as much as it potentially is. It's hard to say exactly what it was that caused this move in silver and gold, uh, other than just saying that it was the move in the other markets, dollar, uh, uh, stocks, treasuries, and whatnot. Uh, so that's where they're at right now, and and certainly eighteen dollars for silver and fifteen hundred for gold are kind of some key support levels. If they drop below that, um, I don't expect them to drop super far. I mean, gold has found some pretty good support, you know, in the fourteen eighty range. Uh, silver certainly has more room to drop, seventeen fifty or even below that. But as a whole, I would see that as a buying opportunity. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see silver and gold back to where they were maybe a week ago, two weeks ago. Uh, but, but again, I mean, this is, this is a bull market after all. And, and this is just a bit of a noise to the downside. And I think it's going to, to fill these gaps to, to the upside again, pretty quickly here. It's just going to be a matter of, of timing and a matter of, you know, what the catalyst is. Otherwise I personally, of course, don't take this, any of this as, as investment advice, but any moves to the downside again to 1750 or even 1450, 1460, 1470 for gold, I'd see that as a buying opportunity. We've also seen the, also seen the gold to silver ratio move up uh, just in the last couple hours on this move in the markets from around 80 to 83, all the way up to 84. And so again, that's that's more skewed in, in favor of silver being a, a better option to buy at this point. But but of course, that hasn't really changed a whole lot in years, right? Because this ratio has been what I would consider pretty high for, for a number of years now. Now, moving on beyond precious metals, there are a couple other topics that I wanted to discuss, including this ongoing dollar liquidity crisis here in the United States. Now, the, the Federal Reserve has and continues to support uh, the the repo markets with their overnight repo operations. So again, the way that this works is they're basically standing in for, for other um, lenders, these, these short-term lenders that traditionally would provide liquidity to banks, financial institutions, et cetera, in order to, to help them out with, with short-term dollar requirements. Right, so so banks or or whatever need some some dollars over the short term, and so what they do is they they essentially sell. It's almost like posting collateral, but sell treasuries or some other asset, usually treasuries, on an overnight basis, and buy them back the next day 
at a slightly higher price, right? In terms of yield, we're talking, you know, to at one point as high as 10% yield, but but a 10% yield on a yearly basis. And so the price difference is, is not a whole lot, but there is a price to pay for this, this overnight type of lending. And, and the problem that occurred early on last week was that there wasn't enough lenders out there. The market wasn't providing enough lenders to satisfy the dollar requirements in the market. And so what happened was the Fed stepped in and, and they started uh, essentially buying these and then selling these these assets back to these financial institutions at that yield in order to try and satisfy these requirements. Well, what's been occurring in, in the week plus that they've been doing this is that uh, the, the they're finding out that as time goes on, I mean, they're the liquidity they're providing to the market is just not sufficient. You know, today we, we saw that uh, the, the Fed instituted a $75 billion repo operation and it was oversubscribed. Over $90 billion worth were, were actually uh, submitted. And basically bank, that, that's banks and financial institutions saying we need $90 plus billion worth of liquidity on an overnight basis. The Fed's only providing $75 billion. Now, a quick reminder, I mean, these these $75 billion a day, that's on an overnight basis. Think of it as like quantitative easing that is then unwound the very next day. And so this is an additive, you know, each $75 billion uh, overnight operation is is then subtracted from the system, right? Think about it, adding liquidity and then subtracting it the very next day. However, the Fed's also been doing two-week long-term operations. It's the same concept except instead of an overnight deal it's it's a two-week deal and and they did the first one earlier this week 30 billion dollars they're gonna do another one later this week 30 billion dollars uh the first one was was oversubscribed uh this this next one again i wouldn't be surprised it's also going to be oversubscribed but these 30 billion dollar operations have have the effect of adding a little bit long a little bit of longer term liquidity i know this is like a lot this is a lot to to um, digest, right? If if you know, I don't work in the financial world, and it takes me a lot to digest this type of news. But this is important because I'm getting to something here. But the the result of this is is that the Fed is doing 75 billion dollars a day, plus soon to be 60 billion dollars on a two week basis. That's what somebody do some quick math. 135 billion dollars, I believe, of of liquidity that they're adding to the system. And and I think pretty soon we're going to find out that that's still not going to be enough. Uh, that the the dollar funding markets are are going to demand more liquidity. So why is this the case? Well, there's one aspect that I think has been somewhat neglected by by a lot of people reporting on this, and that is the what's called the Treasury General Account. So I hope this is all educational for you guys, that, that everything I'm talking about here is, is informational and that you guys learn more stuff here, uh, not, not just like on the ongoing basis, like updates on what's happening in the market, but how these markets work in the first place. So, so a little bit of, of further education here. The Treasury is something called a Treasury, uh, their, their general account at the Federal Reserve that they maintain. And, and, and the way that this works is... You can think of it as a bank account for the treasury, and and the treasury spends it on treasury type of stuff. Whatever the the U.S. government um, 
obligations are, they, they use this money for just that. Now, the, the way that they fund this account is the same way that they fund all of their other obligations. They sell treasury bonds. And so what happens is, is in the past, this treasury general account, you know, prior to the Great Recession, was very small, minuscule. However, after the Great Recession, in order to, to cre- create a larger buffer of, of um, savings, essentially, in case uh, we, we hit a debt ceiling or there's some sort of a funding crisis or something like that for the U.S. government, the Treasury has kept a larger balance in, in this account. And, and actually, uh, prior to the, the last whole debt ceiling debacle, which began in, in April, they actually held between 300 and 400 billion dollars worth of, of dollars in this account, which had to be funded with the sale of treasury bonds. Now, one of the big problems in this ongoing dollar liquidity crisis is that a, a big reason that it's, that it's occurring is because of the U.S. and our addiction to debt, especially the U.S. government. Because the way that it works is when the U.S. government issues debt, issues treasury bonds, those treasury bonds have to be bought with U.S. dollars, and that saps liquidity from the system, right? You think of this big pile of dollars in the financial system that banks need, that that lenders need, that, that consumers need, and when treasuries are issued, you know, billions of dollars come out of this big pool of dollars to buy those bonds. Those dollars then go to the U.S. government and it saps liquidity from the system. Now, of course, yes, the U.S. government does spend that and eventually makes it back into the system theoretically. But it is still a net uh, uh, negative because now those banks, those institutions are holding bonds instead of U.S. dollars. And so again, where am I going with this? Where are you going with this, Matt? This is just a lot of, of rambling. So the Treasury General account earlier this year, early on in the year, was between $300 and, and $400 billion, right, as a whole. But then what happened was we, we hit this debt ceiling. And the U.S. Treasury could no longer issue more debt. And they had to wind down this general account in order to pay their bills, which, you know, just like I, I talked about the, them, the U.S. Uh, the Treasury sapping liquidity from the system when when this Treasury when this general account is built up when it's unwound when when the account is is depleted that's adding liquidity to the system and so that's what happened for the bulk of 2019 when the debt ceiling was reached the Treasury started unwinding this this account. And spending those dollars because they had to, to meet their obligations. And that added dollar liquidity to the system. However, you know, back in, I think it was August, maybe July, they worked out a trade deal, or sorry, not a trade deal. Uh, Sam, I'm so used to talking about this trade deal. It's, it's driving me crazy. Uh, they, they worked out a, a deal with Congress to, to uh, suspend the debt ceiling. I think it was suspend versus raise the debt ceiling. And so the way that worked is that the, the Treasury could then uh, add cash to this Treasury General account once again uh, in order to to build up that buffer again in, in case we hit some sort of a funding crisis or a, a debt ceiling crisis again in the future. And so once again, they're issuing all these bonds in order to, to restore a normal balance to this account, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of bonds. And where this comes full circle is this talk about this dollar liquidity crisis. 
that as soon as the Treasury began significantly adding to these holdings, well, all of a sudden, we have a dollar liquidity crisis. The Treasury, through this Treasury General account, is sapping liquidity from the system by building up this account and issuing Treasury bonds to, to fund this account. And all of a sudden, the Fed has to step in with these overnight repo operations and now these two-week repo operations. So what this means long-term is that, you know, all else being equal, had the Treasury not had to unwind or deplete this account earlier in 2019, had a, a debt ceiling uh, deal been worked out back in April or May or March, then this, uh, what some people would call QE light, these repo operations, probably would have occurred a lot sooner, back in May or June, rather than September. Additionally, what this means is that as of right now, the Treasury still has you know probably at least $50 billion more that they, they would like to add. I don't know exactly what their goal is, and maybe Steve Mnuchin has made this public, maybe not, but, but probably at least another $50 billion worth of, of uh, bonds that they have to issue still in order to bring this up to, to where they'd like it, this Treasury General account. You can think of it as their, their reserve savings account or their checking account with the Fed. And so what that means is it's going to be a further sap of, of liquidity from the system, probably requiring more uh, liquidity injections from the Fed, whether that's overnight repo or some other form of, of QE light. Uh, but also long term, there's not another debt ceiling crisis on the horizon. It's unlikely that the Treasury, in the absence of, of such a situation, would again unwind this balance sheet and, and spend all of these hundreds of billions of dollars, which means that what the Fed is doing right now is likely going to have to be permanent unless there's some other massive injection of dollars into the system. And, and I fail to see where that could possibly come from at this point. Other than, I mean, the obvious answer, the Federal Reserve, right? I mean, yes, there is some some possibility that that dollar lending overseas, that the euro dollar could add some liquidity to the system. But if anything, we're in a euro dollar squeeze currently, uh, fewer dollars circulating, fewer dollars to to provide this liquidity. And so ultimately, what's going to happen have to happen is is the Fed's going to have to step in, right? And they already have. Right to the amount of $135 billion. It's probably going to be up closer to $200 billion, even by the end of this month, maybe early next month. But eventually, um, you know, a month from now, even by the end of October, early November, we're probably going to see larger and larger injections of liquidity, which ultimately could amount to quantitative easing, full-blown quantitative easing, not just these short-term ongoing uh, overnight market operations. So I know that's really wordy. And, and and please comment down below if you enjoy this or if this is just too much, right? Too much um, information or, or too technical of talk. But I think it is important to understand this. If, if we want any hint of, of the Fed's next move, like we know where this is heading long term, but I think it is important to watch this on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Uh, and for me personally, it's it's completely like interesting. I, I, maybe I'm a bit of a nerd on on this type of stuff, but monetary policy and and these operations by the Fed 
it's just interesting to me because I know where it's ultimately heading. It's heading towards massive liquidity injections, massive amounts of QE, lower, lower interest rates, which is ultimately going to be extremely detrimental to the U.S. economy. But hey, I, you know, what's the primary topic that I discuss on this channel? Precious metals, right? And and that's a big part of why I like precious metals so much is because they're going to benefit from that type of, of behavior by the U.S. Federal Reserve or any other central bank around the world, right? Maybe in a future video, I can talk about Mario Draghi and some of his recent comments about things like modern monetary theory or, or QE for the people, i.e. helicopter money. But, but that's coming to a central bank near you, right? Whether you're a U.S. citizen, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, UK, EC, uh, you know, the ECB is your central bank, whatever it is. Uh, that's that's going to happen eventually. Now, moving on, I also want to talk about these unicorns. And now, for those of you that tuned into my, my podcast, my video last Friday, I'm talking about companies that are overvalued, that are usually tech-based, that have promises of massive revenue and profit growth in the future, but currently are usually unprofitable. Or if they are profitable, their valuation far, far exceeds their their actual profits, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, the company that I was talking about last week was was WeWork, which is a, a office space um, business that kind of brands itself as some sort of a community revolutionary business with with a bit of that whole tech uh, side of things, right? If, if you're part of the tech market, then, then that automatically adds like 10 times more to your valuation. But, but it's by no means like a super new type of, of business model. But essentially, they, they lease office space from landlords around, across the country and around the world. And then they then rent that space out to companies that, that need office space. It sounds like a pretty good plan, and for some companies, it can be very profitable. For WeWork, it's not. Uh, I want to say it's something like for every $2 worth of revenue, in terms of dollars they're bringing in, not profit, but but just dollars that people are paying to them, they have something like a $1 loss, right? They're, they're not at all profitable. And, and the big controversy over the last couple of weeks has been a lot of real poor corporate governance at the company. Which this week ultimately led to the ousting of their uh, uh, CEO, this guy by the name of Newman, who is is now being put into a, a he's still like the chair of the board. He's just no longer in the CEO CEO role, and and you know a big part of of why this has been such big news lately is because of a bank by the name of SoftBank. And, and their massive investment in WeWork uh, in the past, valuing this, valuing this company at something like $47 billion. And the idea eventually was that this company was going to move to an IPO. They were going to go public. But over time, as more and more of this came out and more and more investors realized that, hey, corporate governance at this company sucks, and maybe more importantly, they're not even close to profitable, the valuation of this company has absolutely plummeted from $47 billion to probably less than $10 billion, what the market is valuing. And of course, the real value is probably zero. Uh, but, but the reason I brought up WeWork was because I think it's sort of today's poster child of this these unicorn companies that, that promise future growth, uh, but, but currently are unprofitable. 
uh, loss-making machines, cash-burning machines, or, or maybe turn a very small profit relative to their overall stock price. And, and the threat that they pose to the financial system, such as, as SoftBank and other banks that have thrown tons, you know, billions of dollars into these companies, or even just investors, uh, stock market investors, or people that have put money into these hedge funds or, or SoftBank's vision fund, uh, and the losses that they're ultimately going to accrue. You know, and you can add many other companies to this list, right? Uh, a great one just recently that's been in the news would be Roku. I don't know if you've heard of Roku. I, I have a Roku in my household. Um, we, we we use Rokus to watch things like, like Netflix. And the way that it works is it's basically a stick that you plug into your TV and it 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 allows you to access all sorts of different streaming things like Netflix, Sling, Hulu, Prime, and, and all the other big streaming services out there, right? Including Roku. They have a bit of their own Roku, their, their own streaming service. Well, anyways, as of right now, they're valued at something like $12 billion, which is a massive valuation for this company. And, and they've seen a massive move up in, in, in their stock, you know, since they went public, I think in, in late 2017, uh, currently, uh, they're they're a little over a hundred dollars a share. Uh, at their IPO, they were less than fifty dollars a share. Recently, they were actually over one hundred fifty dollars a share. But just in the last couple of days, they actually collapsed from something like one hundred and thirty, one hundred thirty five to where they're at right now, like a massive decline, like twenty percent decline in their stock price. And and you got to wonder, I mean, how many? That's that's a that's a couple billion dollars that that were basically. Uh, in, in stock value that basically evaporated overnight because of this drop in their stock. And and Roku is just another example that I haven't talked about a ton as of late, but but you can add to this list uh, the likes of, of Tesla and to some extent things like Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, some of those social media giants. But there's plenty of others. Um, GoPro was one that was really big back in the day. Chewy.com. Uh, Beyond Meat, um, and some other much larger ones that uh, are valued when you add it all together in hundreds of billions of dollars worth that that have been thrown at these these unicorn companies, and ultimately when when this this current economic expansion ends and we slip into another recession, what's going to happen is that those valuations are going to drop either to zero in some cases, such as WeWork. Or in other cases, I should say Uber and Lyft are two other behemoths that you can add to that list. Or in other cases, such as like Facebook or something, you're going to see their valuation cut, you know, in half or maybe a third of what it was prior. And and that's going to have a serious effect on, I think, the U.S. economy as well as the finances of millions. I mean, that's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars worth of, of equity value that's going to be wiped out over a short period of time. And, and that's not only going to affect people's ability to, to save for retirement, but also their spending habits. The, the stock market has a very real wealth effect on the U.S. economy. When the stock market is up 10% on the year, you better believe that that's going to influence more consumption by consumers, usually debt-based consumption. But when the stock market is down 10% or 20% or 30%, then you're going to see Consumers do just the opposite. They're going to spend less. They're going to save more. They're going to consume less. And of course, the U.S. economy is is largely a consumption-based economy. And so this is definitely something to watch for, not only based on on 
the ability of, of baby boomers or Gen Xers to, to save for retirement or just the, the economy as a whole, but also the overall stability of the financial system. What happens when when these companies go bust? What happens to the ETFs that are a major uh, holder of these companies' stocks? What happens to those ETFs when these companies go bust? Uh, what happens when you see a rush to the exit from from the likes of, of Netflix and Roku and and Tesla and Lyft and all these other unicorn companies? What happens uh, in terms of liquidity? What happens to the stock price? I'm talking flash crashes. I'm talking major drops in these prices of these stocks solely because people will realize that, hey, these companies were a long shot in the first place and in a recessionary environment, they're they're doomed. Now, the final thing I wanted to talk about today was delve into this controversy that we've seen erupt over the last couple of days regarding climate activism, this Greta Thunberg from, from what, Sweden or Scandinavia, and her address to the UN, this is a 16-year-old girl that addressed the UN and, and sort of called out a bunch of world leaders, yelled at them basically for for not living up to their promises, for not saving us from ourselves in terms of the environment. And, and you know, my channel and what I talk about, I always do my very best to strive to stay above partisan politics, stay above the left-right divide. It doesn't mean that I don't get into politics, right? Me talking about precious metals or the Federal Reserve or tax policy or geopolitics, I mean, that's overtly political. But I do strive to stay away from the I'm going to parrot everything the left says or the right says or even the Libertarian Party, which I maybe more closely align with, right? And that's what I'm going to try and do with this whole climate discussion. All right, I want to give you guys my take on it. I want to start off, rather than talking about Greta Thunberg or climate activism or or government action on, on global warming or whatever it is, I want to start off by giving you guys my take on climate change in the first place. Keep in mind, I mean, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not a meteorologist. I don't study this nearly as much as I, I take time out of my day to to study and, and keep abreast of the news with things like precious metals or the economy or monetary policy or anything like that. So so keep in mind, right? But but I also don't have a PhD or any formal education in those subjects either, and yet I would consider myself fairly well informed, right? I don't think you need to be a client climate scientist to to have a valid opinion on any of this this business. But my perspective is that climate is something that changes naturally, whether it has to do with the sun, which is our primary source of of heat and energy here on the earth, or it has to do with um, some other cycle, or, or it has to do with emissions from things like volcanoes or whatever. I think climate change is, is somewhat natural. We've seen it in, in Earth's history. We've seen evidence of climate change of some sort. Climate gets hotter, gets colder. Okay, That's that's not at all disputed by, by scientific fact, right? Or, or what we see as, as scientific fact. The, the big thing at, that, that I have an issue with is saying for sure that, that the current trend, which would be tend to be towards global warming, is primarily caused by humans. Like, I get it. I get the whole idea of the greenhouse effect and the role that theoretically 
something like uh, carbon dioxide would have on the the temperature in the Earth's atmosphere. I get that, right? That science is pretty basic. However, I think it's very difficult to, to definitively say that we're the primary contributors to this. To say that the recent trends, I mean, remember, we have a small slice of, of, of history, of, of meteorologic or, or climate history that, you know, in the last hundred years of, of solid temperature uh, uh, tracking worldwide. It's very difficult to say that that is solely caused or primarily caused by humans. I mean, it's just a fact of the matter. Furthermore, if it is primarily caused by humans, I'm not sold on the fact that we can um, make changes quickly enough to significantly stop the current trend, right? Um, I'm talking changes that would cost trillions of dollars, likely, uh, in economic terms, and and may not actually make a meaningful change in the current trajectory of of the temperature of of the world's atmosphere. And again, that's that's predicated on the fact that we're the primary contributors to them this, this in the first place. We could be a very small contributor in terms of of warming the Earth's climate, and and we could be spending hundreds of millions or trillions of dollars to to change our current practices in vain in terms of changing the temperature. With that being said. I'm an environmentalist. I am. I like. I think 99% of people out there, if you approach this from a nonpartisan point of view and from a non-alarmist and from a non-we're um, going to tax everything point of view, I think most people are in favor of clean water, clean air, and and less waste going to landfills. That doesn't mean that they're they're practices always line up with that. I know mine don't, right? I'm not a perfect person in terms of environmental uh, um, consciousness, right? I drive my car nearly every day. I have a fairly long commute. I don't ride my bike, right? That, that would be a, a very long commute. Um, but I do do th- some things, you know, I compost. I, I do all sorts of other things to be more mindful about all this. But where I think the left, and, and not even the left, but climate change activists go wrong in the first place is saying that like, Somehow, by saying that we're not sure that the climate, that the science probably isn't settled on on what's ultimately causing climate change, that they assume that by us saying that we somehow don't want clean water, clean air, or or less plastic in the oceans, or something like that, which isn't at all true. Like I want those things, right? I would not want to live somewhere like like China or India. Solely for the reason of, of, I mean, never mind the societal differences and all the other right uh, political differences and, and less liberty and all that, but just the amount of emissions in the air, the, the, the quality of that air would, would just be detrimental to my own life, my family's life, right? I want clean air. I want clean water. I, I live, uh, you know, within 20 miles of like Lake Superior, one of the largest freshwater lakes in the world. Right, and I value that clean water. Right, I basically have a creek in my backyard that leads into a river that leads into that that massive lake. Right, and so I care about clean water. Right, I compost. I I just do my best to to reduce the amount of of waste that makes it into the landfill system, wherever those landfills ultimately are. So so I care about the environment. I'm just not sold on the fact that that 
the science has settled that that we're the primary cause of this this change in, in global temperature, right? Or that it's that it all comes down to carbon emissions, right? There's a lot of other changes that humans have made to the environment that I think are oftentimes not talked about as much, but could be playing just as large of a role. Right. And I, and I talk, you know, I think, and by no means am I a scientist, so I don't know, you know the exact role of all of these things, but I think of things like, like surfaces, man-made surfaces across the world. Um, you, you think of the amount of, of landscapes that have been overtaken by urban sprawl or suburban sprawl, whether it's in the U S or China or whatever, you know, in the past, those surfaces were green for the most part. Today, they're, they're not. I mean, you go down to, to, to almost any city around the world and the surfaces are going to be brown or black for the most part, right? Maybe some like sidewalks or, or cement roads or concrete roads, but otherwise like most pavement is black, right? And, and pavement or a black pavement is going to absorb more energy from the sun than a white roof or a green roof or just a forest, right? Um, I mean, of course, forests absorb energy through photosynthesis, but but different than what I'm talking about, thermal energy. And so, I mean, even those types of changes, I think, are are not f- talked about enough, right? The role that 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 could play, and I mean, that that would be something that I would get behind, as long as it's not government that's like somehow leading the way and mandating that every roof have to be, has to be covered in in like a nice, you know, six inch thick layer of sod. Um, I can get behind that. Right. I can get behind the idea of like, uh, you know, how about we begin changing the surfaces that we use and, and how that influence the amount of, of energy being absorbed by or, or by the earth from from the sun. Right. Or how about things like like talking about Arctic ice sheets? You know, how about we you know, what role does things like um, constantly going through these these oceans or, or through these ice sheets with with ice cutters, what, what role does that play in this whole um, uh, shrinking ice cap, right? If that's indeed the case, right? Uh, if you're breaking off a ton of chunks of, of ice. And again, I don't know if that's large enough on the whole scale of things to actually cause a difference, but it's something that's not really talked about. Or even just the role of, of combustion. I mean, you think about like, yes, fossil fuels, they, they release... Um, carbon into the atmosphere. Um, but you also got to wonder, you know, the constant burning of these fossil fuels. I mean, that's essentially, that's an exothermic reaction. It was energy that was stored in the earth and now it's being released. And obviously that energy dissipates pretty quickly into the universe or, or elsewhere, but it's a constant exothermic reaction that's always occurring around the world. And how much does that even influence um, climate? How much does that influence uh, even these temperature gauges that are measuring the temperature, right? Um, or, or even something like like planes and, and airline travel. How much do uh, what some people would call chemtrails, what I would call just vapor trails from, from airplanes, how much does that influence climate in the amount of sunlight absorbed or not absorbed or reflected back to the earth, right? Because, I mean, you look over some major cities, that creates a large amount of cloud cover. And so these are all topics I think has to be talked about. But overall, I'm an environmentalist. I'm just not sold in this climate change business. Furthermore, I don't think that government's going to be the one to solve the problem, right? 
I, I, you know, it was, um, yes, they can play a role, but, but ultimately I think this has to come down to, to individual changes. Uh, and, and right now, I mean, a lot of individuals just aren't making those choices. Right. Um, and I'm not trying to guilt you guys into making, uh, uh, environmental choices. You guys can do whatever you want. Uh, but, but I don't think government and taxes and regulations are the way to go. Um, I think that that's going to be hugely damaging to the economy and what's damaging to the economy very well could be ultimately damaging to the environment. You know, the final thing about this is, is something I'm somewhat passionate about as I've learned more about it as of late is the role of nuclear energy long-term in terms of, of cutting, the you know the amount of emissions and carbon output of of coal power plants or natural gas again even you know climate change aside i like the idea of clean air and clean water right and and coal power plants natural gas those those have gotten cleaner over time but they still don't help right and and nuclear power could be huge in the future and it was kind of funny watching this this Greta Thunberg call out France of all countries uh, for for not living up to their end of some deal in terms of of making climate changes without also calling out China, which is the single largest contributor worldwide to to this pollution problem, uh, France actually derives something like seventy five percent of their energy from from nuclear power, and unfortunately, the world as a whole has has sort of moved away from nuclear power because of things like Chernobyl, Three Mile Island here in the United States, or Fukushima over in Japan. But as a whole, nuclear energy, if you're smart about it, is very clean. It's much cleaner and much safer than it has ever been. And it's cheaper. It's cost effective. Um, and, and I, you know, for all the talk about energy independence here in the United States in terms of fossil fuels and, and oil, you know, how much of a change would it be if we, we sought out energy independence in terms of, of fossil fuels? If we, if we sought to, to, and not fossil fuels, but, but nuclear energy. You have to excuse me, I've been talking for a while now. Nuclear energy. You know, how much cheaper would energy be here in the United States if we went on push to build, you know, 10 nuclear reactors a year for the next 10 years, right? How much money would we save? And it has, again, I mean, if you're smart about it, if you don't, you know, put these on like the San Andreas Fault, if you don't put these in a, uh, you know, the Florida coastline or the Texas coastline where they're going to hit, get hit by hurricanes, they can be uh, very effective sources of power. And I think that's something that's not talked about enough. Uh, and it's something totally ignored by many climate activists and many, many environmentalists, which I, th- I see as very unfortunate. But anyways, a bit of a longer video here today. As always, I, I appreciate your guys' feedback. I appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to, to listen to this today. Sorry if it's a little scatterbrained, a lot of topics to talk about today. And of course, climate is not something I'm super well-versed in. This climate change is not something I talk about a ton. So uh, a little bit all over the place. But but I wanted to get my thoughts out there in a nonpartisan manner. As always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video. Listen to this podcast and God bless.